For those of you that may be visiting, we are continuing on our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And we've arrived at the commandment, you probably have picked it up, you shall not kill, or really what the commandment says, you shall not do murder. Now there's a difference there, isn't there? I mean, if you really think about it, killing is different than doing murder or murdering someone. And in fact, that's the word that Jesus uses clearly in the New Testament reading. And there's a couple of principles that are really, really important when you read Scripture overall, and in particular when you get to the Ten Commandments. And part of the reason is, when you get to the Ten Commandments, we have a tendency, I mean, just think about yourself for a second, we have a tendency to try to restrict the commandments. When Jesus says something, when the Scripture says something, Well, he didn't really mean that. You know, we want to come up with our spin. It's very popular today to come up with spin anyway. But we want to come up with our spin on what it's saying, when in fact, one of the key principles in reading and understanding scriptures and commandments is understanding what the whole of scripture says, not just little parts, not just proof texting or taking something out of context. But rather, what does the whole witness of Scripture say? And secondly, when we come to various Scriptures, there are nuances and subtleties that unless we're aware of those, because of the whole counsel of God, because of the witness of Scripture in general, interpreting Scripture, we will miss those nuances and subtleties. We'll want to spin it or make it to some kind of restriction the way that we want to restrict it, and we'll miss it. Like, and... and, People also, by the way, will expand the commandment to a place that it was not intended to be expanded to. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. That's why not murdering as opposed to not killing are two different things. Because we have a system and we need a system of justice. It's critical. And also, let's take it to a different direction, war. Scripture never condemns war. That is not to say that war is not a tragedy or something that's awful. But scripture never condemns war. It's interesting. And there's a a writer, many of you are familiar with his name, Augustine or Augustine, who came up, he was the first one to do it, with what's called the just war theory. I don't know how many of you ever read that, if you took philosophy. But the just war theory talks about six prerequisites for responding to a situation with war. For example, if there's a genocide going on, Germany or Russia, and we see this atrocity going on, that we feel compelled by the Lord to step in and defend the innocent. And so Augustine came up with these six principles that it must be a just cause, that there must be a just intention that it's a last resort, that there's a formal declaration, there's limited objectives. You're not trying to just obliterate the country. And there's proportionate means. Now, if you really think about what I just read to you, it takes discernment, it takes wisdom, it takes prayer. And that's why our founding fathers in this country were so committed to talking about and writing about how you really can't govern without biblical principles. Even people that were deists and not Christians, talked about the importance of Scripture. The importance of Scripture in guiding 
if we get into war. Guiding when it comes to justice in a country. Guiding domestic problems and challenges. Which scripture talks about that too. Romans 13 talks about the state does not wield the sword in vain. That it's meant to be there for justice. And so we can't, when we hear, thou shalt do no murder, take it to another area that it's not meant to address. It's very specific in what it addresses. And you know, this is not just a problem here. It's a problem throughout the world, obviously. But different people use different rules different ideas, different thoughts about how justice should be carried out. When I was in Africa, Tanzania, this past summer on, on a mission trip, I would, if I could find it, get my hands on an English newspaper. You know, most of the papers over there in Swahili, which is very, very difficult for me because I just know about 10 words. And so... I would try to find an English paper, and one of the stories that made the paper several times while I was over there is a cabinet member, and I had met two cabinet members in my various mission trips over there, a cabinet member who is one of the most powerful positions in Tanzania. And besides the president, it is the most powerful group of people. A cabinet member was in traffic in Dar es Salaam. Now, if you know anything about Dar es Salaam and the traffic there, it's horrendous. We think we have gridlock in some of our cities, but see, we have traffic rules. They don't really have traffic rules. I mean, you can get in a bunch because everybody's vying. They don't have lights everywhere. They don't have traffic circles everywhere. And so it's far worse than 278, trust me. And these traffic jams are a lot of times caused by this one particular vehicle known as a dala-dala. Does anyone know what a dala-dala is? A dala-dala is like a small bus that they absolutely pack people in and they try to get as many trips as they can and so they're cutting people off, they're riding on sidewalks, they are uh, inserting themselves in traffic because they have semi-pull-offs, they're not really pull-offs, they are incredibly aggressive drivers. And the reason it's called a dala-dala is because it's probably one of the cheapest modes of transportation. You can travel like 30, 40 miles in one of these for a dala. Dala, dala. That's why it's called a dala-dala. And this cabinet member was so frustrated by the traffic that day and one of these dala-dala drivers, he shot and killed him. And some people are saying, well, it was justified. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. Because everybody experiences the frustration of dollars over there. So there are some people actually defending him. They're defending him because he's in a powerful position. He's in a position that meets out justice. He's in a position of saying, this dollar driver deserved it. And of course, there's the other side of people who, who want his head, particularly dollar drivers. And that's what you have. You have people that want to set him free. You have people that want him killed. And you have everything in between. Consider his position. Consider he had a bad day. Whatever. But what is justice? 
as opposed to what is murder. It gets down to what is right and wrong, good and evil. I mean, that's the question that we ask ourselves. And where do we go when we begin to unpack what we're trying to determine? See, for us as Christians, we go to the Scriptures. Because that is meant to be our guide. And Scripture always will unpack it if you're willing to look at the whole counsel of God, the whole witness of Scripture, and begin to piece it together. You can understand what God is trying to say about thou shalt do no murder. And the most important and foundational thing that you need to understand when you think about that is, where does life come from in the first place? Who created life? Who created you? God is the source of life. And so when we just answer that most basic question for ourselves, that God is the source of life, then we look to him and say, what is life? What is life meant to be about? How are we meant to live life? How are we meant to support life? That we look to the one who created life at all. And see, part of the problem, again, in the Western world is how people have begun to think about the questions of life and the principles of life and the commandments with which they live. And one of the foundational belief statements that has changed Western thought comes from a man by the name of Descartes. And he's famous for that line most of you have probably heard, I think, therefore I am. Instead of saying, I am because God created me. Or I think because God made me a reasoning person in his image. See, once we step outside of always reflecting on God with that statement, I think, therefore, I am. If I am, and God is not the I am in my life, then I'm in trouble. Because when I think, I'm going to think about what serves me best. Because if there is no God for my life, then I'm the God of my life. And I will determine what is right and wrong and good and evil, period. And that's a problem. And it's a problem today in particular. Because we continue to depart from a biblical worldview. In the culture, even in the church. And Jesus wanted everybody to be clear that it's not even just the letter of the law, because you can get hung up in the letter of the law. Jesus addresses the intention, the heart of the law. Which is why he said, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you. And then he lists several aspects of what it means to not murder someone in your heart. Because what happens if you kill someone off in your heart? Think about it. What you sow. What you will sow is brokenness. Broken relationship. Gossip and slander, which is condemned by Scripture. You will try to kill someone's spirit. You will try to destroy their reputation. 
and you will kill them out of your life. It's a broken relationship. And that's why Jesus says, you really need to understand this is not just the letter of the law. This is about the spirit of the law and impacts so many of the other words and statements and precepts and principles that we hear in Scripture that are said, don't do. Why? Because God is about love. If we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're going to be open to his Holy Spirit teaching us, guiding us, empowering us to live with love, with forgiveness, with bearing with one another. And we're not going to have these murderous thoughts that murderous words aren't going to be on our lips. That we're not trying to hurt someone physically, emotionally. I mean, think about the abuse and, if you will, the murder of people via the media, social media. Bullying. I mean, we can take this in so many different directions. If you really think about the ramifications for your life and you don't restrict it to physically murdering someone else. But the whole counsel of Scripture, the whole counsel of Christ. That's why James says, be angry but do not sin. That the anger of human beings does not work the righteousness of God. Why? Because it's often self-centered. And instead of being constructive, which anger can do, by the way, Jesus got angry. God got angry. It's often destructive. See, anger can propel us in really helpful directions. Righteous indignation, protecting innocent people. But it can be so destructive. And we need to go in one other direction because of our culture today. And if you looked at the sermon outline, you probably know what the topic is. And let me say from the outset, this is a forgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that's denying Jesus. But this is forgivable. And sometimes we want to be so punitive in a culture by and large, that really doesn't understand the principle here. That really doesn't understand biblical teaching here. Because of what we hear from the media and politicians and pundits. That we make politically an issue that is not meant to be simply political. It's meant to be moral. It's meant to be spiritual. And that's the issue of abortion. Abortion is something that is widely accepted. Widely accepted because people use various arguments of rights, of birth control, of unwanted. When we forget the scriptures, such as Psalm 139, that God speaking says, I knit you together in your mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, where Jeremiah is told, I knew you before you were born. I had a call on your life before you were born. That if you really want to understand the teaching of Scripture, 
You just look to Jesus. Let me ask a question before I talk specifically about this. Who is our model as Christians for what our lives are meant to be like? Anybody? Thank you. Good job. That's usually the answer when someone asks a question, you know. It's Jesus, right? Okay, so, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, when was Jesus Jesus? We say it in the Apostles' Creed. We indicate it in the Nicene Creed. Because in the Apostles' Creed, we, we say he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when was Jesus, Jesus, humanly speaking? Conception. Let's be clear. Let's not dance around. And if Jesus is our motto, that should tell us something. See, we want to play this game of viability. We want to play this game of sometime while the baby's in the womb. The Spirit enters. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, was present at conception. So if you've ever had a question about when human life begins, look at the creeds. Page 96, page 358 of the Book of Common Prayer. We may not be able to convince a secular world a world that's not submitted to the scriptures, submitted to the whole teaching of what the ramification is about this commandment. But we need to be convinced. Because for a Christian, with Jesus as our model, it's pretty clear. And people want to talk about choice and rights. That comes before conception. You have a choice before conception that you need to exercise. And I've heard people even say, well, what if the child is deformed? You're probably saying that to the wrong person. I have a mentally handicapped little sister who I love, who's transformed my life. My brother and I were talking last night. He took her out to dinner Friday night. He was up in Pittsburgh. And we talked about my little sister. Because she's touched our lives. My oldest grandson, Owen, was supposed to be born with a chondroplasia. Some of you know that. It's dwarfism. He wasn't. The doctor came in the next day and said, Well, I guess he's not a dwarf. They don't know. My younger grandson was born with what was supposed to be a possible brain problem because he had a tumor here. So my daughter-in-law was flown to Children's Hospital in Houston. And it was a hemangioma, which presumably will be absorbed or go away. Doctors don't know. All the time.
See, we need to trust the Lord. And if we've done, because we've listened to culture, because we've listened to the secular arguments, there's forgiveness. God wants to forgive you and he wants to heal you. This is not about condemnation. This is about God's teaching. So that you know. So that you can address. Your children, your grandchildren, your friends. Not in a condemnatory way, but in a loving way. Because God is about love and forgiveness. You know, when we read the Ten Commandments, oftentimes we get to this one. And we say, got that. I didn't, I didn't murder anybody, I'm good. And we move on. We really need to look at our hearts. We need to look at our thoughts and the words that we say. And how we approach and address people. Are we really doing what we do out of love and out of forgiveness and out of bearing with other people? You know, Cain and Abel is such a great story in so many ways because of what it says. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. See, that's why God sent Jesus. So that we can have that salvation, we can have that forgiveness, we can be transformed. In a world that does not do anger well, that does not do conflict well, we can See, what happens is anger leads to resentment and resentment leads to bitterness and bitterness leads to alienation and we have many resentful and bitter people and we can't be that person. We can get angry. Then we learn to deal with it. We learn to deal with it God's way. We turn it into something productive and constructive. We turn it into something that allows us to reconcile with other people and be that loving, forgiving person and to break down walls. So you can't write this commandment off. You have to look at it and say, what about my life? Where do I need to be forgiven? Where do I need to forgive and bring bring reconciliation? That we're going to love our neighbors ourselves. Because that's the message of the cross. Jesus came that we might have life. Abundant life, John 10. Eternal life, John 3.16. Because he is about life. That's why he made us in the first place. That's why he went to the cross to redeem us so that we might have life. Let's pray.
Lord, we live in a fallen world where sin abounds and we are all defective. Lord, we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. We need to be open to look into our hearts and our minds and our lives and see where our thoughts might be murderous, our words might be murderous, as well as our actions. Lord, help us to take the life that you've given to us, the gift of eternal life, and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to be people who speak life, who share life, because we share love and we share Jesus and we share forgiveness because we've been forgiven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.